It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You walked out the door and left... $850 million on the table, right? A little bit more. She's pausing for effect. I, I'm trying to think of my head. Like, it must have been hard. But how much money do you need? Money and wealth does not buy immortality. It, it, for me, time is actually more of an essence. How can I contribute to this world while I'm still on it? It was almost two years ago our next guest rejected me. It's part of my job as a journalist. I call up people and I ask them to speak to me, oftentimes at these really sensitive moments in their lives. And when I called Brian Acton, who's the co-founder of WhatsApp, he had just walked away from $850 million at Facebook. Sure, he was still a billionaire. The company sold to Facebook for $22 billion in 2014. So let's be honest, he did pretty well. But to me, and well, I think to a lot of other people, it felt like he was taking a stand. A stand against what? In my mind, it felt like he had something to say, which he opted not to say to me or really anyone else at the time. He rarely does interviews. But that's not the only reason I found him interesting. I've always been interested in people who don't exactly fit the mold. And Brian feels like an anti-Silicon Valley founder. At a time where tech has been glamorized, he's incredibly understated. He's shy, doesn't love the spotlight. And when you dig into his past, you're going to find out that he did a lot of unsexy work in past jobs, the kind of stuff that he refers to as... I call it shoveling shit. Years later, he's finally ready to talk. Now, with all the money and all the time, he's placing his bets on privacy, 
a pursuit of encryption and free expression in a world where I think we've all got questions over what's happening to our data. Tech is now under fire for breaching our trust. Lawmakers are calling to break up big tech, and Facebook is at the center of the privacy debate. So that leaves Brian Acton in a fascinating position to finally speak out. He's the co-founder of WhatsApp, a messaging platform he built on the promise of encryption. And then came that dramatic exit from Facebook. So what made him leave? And should big tech be broken up? Also, how did his pursuit of privacy lead him to his next and what he says will be his final act? And how does he feel about all of this? I'm Lori Siegel, and this is First Contact. I'm trying to think of when our first contact was. Pete's Coffee. Pete's Coffee. I feel like I stalked you for a while, right? In, um, I want to say San Mateo. Yeah. Somewhere mid mid peninsula because right. you drove down and I drove up. So. I know, and I remember there was this really weird moment where because my taxi cab driver got lost and you oh. just like showed up out of nowhere and we're like, here you are. It was and that was my first contact with you. But I had been, I how did I contact? I think I contacted you over like Facebook or something. Mm, I, you called me. I called, did I cold called you? Yeah. And I think it was always sensitive because you know every people pay attention. I think when when you speak and people are kind of looking at maybe, you. Maybe sometimes too much, but yeah. Yeah, but because of who you are, right? For for better or for worse, they they do pay attention to it. Why did you decide to say yes? As you know, I've been involved in this Signal Messenger product and Signal Foundation now for about eighteen months, and so we we have more of our feet under us. There's more to talk about. There's been more distance from my time at WhatsApp, so I think it's it's easier for me to talk about things. Very much feels like your next act. You could do anything with who you are right now, and this is really what you want to do. Yes. I'm not the kind of guy that's going to go sit on a beach or anything. I really don't sit still very well. I'm much better as a guy who rolls up his sleeve and, and just wants to work. I don't know you very well, but I get that sense from our, our conversations we've had because you're, I mean, I don't I feel like it's like kind of cheesy to say in front of someone like, well, you're worth billions, but you are worth billions. Isn't that correct? At say? least that's what Forbes says. And you could do whatever you want. Um, but that's not that's not going to be your life's work. You know, you're not going to end there. No. And it's it's very much in my DNA. You know, my grandfather worked into his 80s. My mom is, you know, still very much working and and I have the desire to work. So it's it gives us purpose, I suppose. You grew up in central Florida? Uh, north and central Florida. Yeah, ten, um, 10 years in Florida. But it's just crazy to be sitting across from like someone who's, I mean, a, a bit of a titan of Silicon Valley to think this was not your DNA at all. Like your, da- your DNA was like so far from this. The, the confluence probably was math. Definitely early, you know, sort of early into the whole math thing, really enjoyed it. And then, you know, also science, that type of stuff. So, I mean, definitely had the academic aptitude. So I was here, you know, stereotypical, you know, competitive overachiever in some ways. I saw that your mom uh, started a freight business. Your grandmother mm-hmm. owned a golf course. You had a lot of female empowerment in, fem- in your mm-hmm. life early on. What did that do for you? Well, I mean, certainly my mom and my grandmother taught me a lot about sort of the value of hard work and uh, taking risks, right? I, I think the most important lesson there was you could always land on your feet. And so, you know, it was easy for my grandmother. I shouldn't say it was easy because building a golf course is actually not easy. But, you know, she could always sort of land on her feet and work if something ever failed for her. Um, and the same thing with my mom. My mom is a brilliant and gifted person as as well. And so she she would always land on her feet 
And what do you mean by that, though? Very, very early in her career. I mean, she was a very young mother, also single at the time. So she was a single mother. And so, you know, for her, it was quite a struggle to, you know, make ends meet, that type of thing. She wasn't college educated. And so she had, you know, at the beginning, you know, when she was 22 years old, she had me. She was 18 when she had my older brother. So, you know, she was at work very early and you know, at the ground floor, she didn't have any advantages bestowed upon her. So she had to sort of work her way up. And she fell into the freight business because in the 80s, freight became this big thing. And so that's how she sort of fell into selling freight. I mean, mm-hmm. at one point in her life, she sold vacuum cleaners door to door. Wow. So Did you ever help her? No, no, I was too <laughs> what young. What were you doing? Uh, there were times in which I would stuff envelopes for her um, in some of her entrepreneurial ventures mm-hmm. um, and, you know, that type of stuff. But more like sort of back office type stuff I would help her with. But I'd never go door-to-door with her or anything like that. Never go with her on a sales call. I grew up uh, in the South, and my parents got divorced when I was younger. And I remember it was harder for my mom. And I always felt a little bit like I was the only Jewish girl at a very Christian conservative school. Oh, yeah. And so I always felt like a little bit of an outsider, which is, I, I think, why I was so attracted to the idea of entrepreneurs and people who didn't fit in the lines. But watching, I think, how my family came about, I think, very much shaped the type of work I would do, maybe even to the point where mm-hmm. why I'm sitting here talking to you. Um, is there anything specific you could pull that you think really shaped like your obsession with building these things? You know, my mom, ultimately, she believed in me and she supported me in so many ways. And, you know, in sixth grade, uh, one of my teachers recommended I skip a grade. And she was like, no, I don't want to do that. I'd rather he get a better education at a private school. So she drove me every morning for an hour to a private school uh, for grade seven. Um, we we subsequently moved and went back to public school. But I mean, that was kind of a, a sign of her dedication. And I think that same sort of dedication passed on to me. You know, I, I've, I've always been very dedicated to the work I do, mm. to the level that you sort of take it to heart, right? You're passionate about it. And you you make your choices based on what you're passionate about. Did you think you were going to do something big? Let's go back to like Brian in Florida who's stuffing envelopes for his mom. <laughs> but did you think you were like capable of it? You know, I, I was certainly an outlier in my school and an outlier among, you know, my schoolmates. You could say I was maybe more of a late bloomer. I mean, even being a 35-year-old entrepreneur, uh, which is fairly atypical in, by Silicon Valley standards. Yeah. You know, it's more like, oh, it's the 20-something, you know, three, four years out of college I more followed more traditional paths and really became much more self-aware and aware of, you know, my potential at a later age. You're right. Your story isn't very necessarily like Silicon Valley legend of like, oh, he dropped out of Stanford and went and started his own company. I mean, actually, you went to Stanford, you transferred to Stanford, and then you went and you worked at Yahoo and one of the early employees there, right? Yep. I was ended up hired as the sixth engineer. And an employee number 44. How long were you there? Seven years or something? 11 and a half years. Wow. So 96. And by the way, in tech years, like that's a really long time, yeah, right? Yeah. What made you see? Like, well, okay, and Yahoo so wasn't the, sexy forever, right? No, right? Like no. it was sexy at first when you started, but like not as much so, right? You know, I was dedicated. I became director of engineering. And then, you know, several years later, I became VP of engineering. I continued to build my reputation at Yahoo. Um, and I gained that extra experience of like managing budgets and... I mean, not that it's the funnest thing in the world. I mean, well, it sounds like you're like the guy who does like the stuff that's not that sexy, but that's important, right? I call it shoveling shit. But yeah. What do you mean shoveling shit? Well, that maybe that aspect I get from my dad just because he didn't tolerate any sort of guff when it came to cleaning up dog poop. What do you mean? Oh, we had dogs. We had lots of dogs growing up. And my my brother and I had to do all the cleanup. So 
you, you just had to clean up dog shit. Like that's that's basically the training that that built out like this entrepreneur. I think. Well, I think it gives you another dimension. There's risk taking, which I could really say it came from my mom, right? And then there's sort of the dedication to hard work, and I think that was both my parents. But I think there was also a sort of no nonsense component to my dad that was like, you know, I don't care if it's you know baking a cake or picking up poop. It's you've got to do what the needful. There's an Indian phrase, it's you do the needful. You do that which is necessary to be done. And that's what you focus on. And yeah, I mean, when I was at WhatsApp especially, I did the needful. I did HR, I did legal work, I did all kinds of random stuff, um, paid bills, paid taxes, because it needed to be done. You know, we eventually hired people to do it, but you, you do the needful. You're the person that people need when things go get chaotic, right? Or just when you need to do the basics. Yeah. It's not sexy in some cases, but it's it's what's necessary. It's it's what needs to be done. And it's, I mean, to be honest, it's a little bit of the anti-Silicon Valley narrative. The more you sell yourself and sell what you're doing, like the more people kind of pay yeah. attention. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an element of cult of personality um, yeah. and, and building your personal brand alongside your corporate brand. And then a lot of times they're conjoined. I mean, you can't separate one from the other. Yeah, I, I was I was never really into that aspect of it because I didn't see that that was where the real value comes from. You know, it, for me, it was wanting to build something that was useful for the world. You know, you ask yourself, what can I do that can have a more permanent and longstanding um, contribution, right? And that's that's focusing on utility to me. It's not focusing on fat. It's like you have fad versus utility. And you know, famously, there's a piece of paper, no ads, no games, no gimmicks that you can read. But that to me embodied, you know, what was ephemeral about technology. Like you, if you invest in all this gimmickry, fine, you get a pop, you get, you know, a bump in monthly actives or you get up some sort of bump, but it's not sustained. It's not me. It's not what I ever want to build in product. The day that Jan founded WhatsApp, this is February 24th, 2009. The first version of WhatsApp was this online status service, right? It was like, oh, I'm in a meeting. Don't call me. It wasn't, there was no messaging in it. And Jan didn't pivot into messaging until over the summer and released the 2.0 product in, I think, September of 2009. But then, you know, he's like, hey, this messaging thing is taking off. I was like, okay, I can get behind this. This makes sense. You know, let's take on the telephone company. Us being the little guy, us being, you know, let's, let's, let's really show the world that you, you don't have to pay 50 cents to send one picture, hmm. um, which is what people were paying via MMS and SMS uh, rates. And so... Um, what I did is I said, okay, I'll work for free. I will invest in this company. And I became sort of the junior partner in all this and the junior co-founder. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, he and I sort of went at it as partners through through and through from the beginning to the end. Is there a moment that you ever thought like, wow, this is going to be really valuable? You know, there was some seminal moments when we, for example, we passed the population of Twitter. You know, the funny part is like the social network movie. It's like, ooh, one million users. Woohoo. Well, we had a million users like in the first three months of using the, of the product. Right. I mean, I'm sure there were always an interest in buying you guys. So eventually Facebook came calling, right? Yeah. I mean, several years later, and that was a, a lengthy courtship between Jan and Mark. Um, mm -hmm. I wasn't really part of that. But it, you know, sort of culminated in this wonderful Valentine's Day dinner that they had, and they fell in love and got no, <laughs> got engaged. Um, no, it, um, but it was sort of over that Valentine's Day in 2014 that you know they hammered out some of the financial details and and all that. And what was going through your head at the time? Well, the dollar amounts became very large, 
And so, you know, you, you, you start to ask yourself, how could I ever say no to this? Right. And so you're, you're just, you're going through all the rational decision-making of, okay, well, I have shareholders, I have employees with stock options, you know, this would have a material impact on them. How could I ever say no to this and, and not have them revolt on me? Right. Um, Andrew Mason went through this with Groupon, right? Groupon turned down a bunch of money from, from Google and, and subsequently 18 months later, he had to go public because that was the only way he could prove to his investors and everyone else that he made the quote unquote right choice. I didn't want to be in a position of having to do the same thing because I knew that WhatsApp was not ready to go public. We weren't in, in that, we weren't in the right stage of our life cycle to even think about going public. We would, if we were to become public, we would probably be, we would start maybe two years later. Yeah. Uh, we were just too, we were, maybe that was where the being too profitable worked out in our favor, but we were just too focused on building a great product and and addressing our user base. I mean, that's all we were ever focused on. I remember um, being on TV at the time and, and when uh, Instagram was going to sell for a billion dollars, I remember saying like a billion dollars. Can you believe this? Can you comprehend this? Right. And, and everyone was like, oh, my God, a billion dollars. And then you guys came along and you sold for it was 19 billion, but it ended up being like 22 billion. And it was just like this extraordinary moment, I guess, for me personally, as someone who had covered startups for so long. It was just this like, whoa, like, yeah. I cannot believe how big this was. And, and so it felt like that to me. And I wasn't on I wasn't on the inside, mm-hmm. you know. So how did you feel that day? Uh, well, that morning I called my mom and I said, you need to watch the news um, after market closes. And that was all I could tell her I, because otherwise it's insider information or whatever. And so you have to be, you know, careful of, of that. And so I was like, just watch the news after and. We'll, we'll talk afterwards. And so, you know, that it was a, it was a whirlwind 72, 96 hours. What yeah. did your mom say when she saw the news? Oh, she was like, wow, 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 wow. I mean, like it was nonstop. Wow. She was like, she couldn't believe it. She was in disbelief. That was like the whole conversation was just her saying, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> Do you remember the first thing you did when you signed the papers? Um, I think I shook hands with Jan. So that was a sweet moment for us. I mean, obviously it's going to bring incredible things, but it's also going to, it's going to change things. I mean, it's going to change everything. Did you grapple with that or did that take a little bit of time? Are you still grappling with that? Yes. In what capacity? In every capacity. Like what? You know, you, you have this enormous responsibility to figure out what to do with your wealth, right? Uh, and for me, it, it's, you know, what can I do that's good in the world, you know, and, and how can I do good in the world? Um, it's also an onslaught of interest. You know, I get a lot of spam. I get a lot of, I shouldn't call it spam. I get a lot of solicitation, right? And so I have to protect myself more. I have to actually put up more barriers to me than I, than I'm used to. I, I, you know, uh, it, I've I've grown a cu- more accustomed to it. I maybe have a slightly thicker skin, but I'm not the best guy at saying no. And so, by the way, we're not complaining about uh, having all the money. I get it, but yeah. I can imagine that it really does something to you mentally to like have that extraordinary amount of wealth that comes with power and responsibility. Yeah, it lets your I mean your values come out right, and so I took to, I take to heart the responsibilities of it. 
I, I don't necessarily view it as power per se. I think power is a whole other equation. But, you know, I think that with wealth, you can do good things in the world. You can, you know, and, and that's that's where I can spend my time. Um, and I do spend my time on, you know, building technology in a nonprofit capacity, right? So I also try not to let it change my life too much because I, I don't want it to distort my reality. And I don't want to become one of those persons that is lives in such a distorted world relative to how everyone else lives. I live in a fairly normal place and in a fairly normal town and my kids go to public school, right? Even still, you know, my kids are afforded slightly better things and slightly better, and and I worry about that sometimes. Am I setting the right precedent for them? Am I, you know, is that the right thing for them and how they grow up? Is my son going to have to shovel shit the same way I did, right? Or clean toilets or whatever. I mean, I had to do all that, right? So, um, and, um, or is he just going to have a person who comes and cleans the house every day and, you know, and he won't learn how to do that himself. To me, it's more, you, you, you do in life, you know, you reap what you sow, so to speak. You don't just get something for free. We're going to take a break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, Brian talks about why he decided to walk away from Facebook and what it was like to leave behind $850 million on the way out. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up... (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. 
Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You ended up leaving Facebook, I guess, in, in a way that's, and this is maybe why you don't talk all the time, in a way that was kind of public. Why the decision to, to go? I, I started to see the, sort of read the tea leaves, you know, see the writing on the wall, you know, that type of thing, that it was going to become a more difficult environment for me, that Facebook was wanting to assert more control over outcomes and wanted certain outcomes that I wasn't really in support of. So, I mean, it boils down to get out of the way and let them do their thing. Uh, let's let's be adults and recognize that I sold my company and I reaped enormous benefits and let me get out of the way so that they can get on with their business. And that's exactly what I did. But you talked earlier about you're a utility guy and it was very much them trying to monetize it in ways that you guys didn't agree with. Is that correct to say? So, um, certainly. You know, we were going back and forth a lot into like, how do we monetize WhatsApp? What's the right strategy? Uh, should we put ads into the product? you know, those types of questions, you know, at WhatsApp, it was like, we would just say no, and then we would move on with our lives. The way it works in a big, giant corporate machine is you say no, and then the guy in charge says, well, let's go do a bunch of research on that, right? And so then you spin up, you know, some sort of experiments or research or whatever. And at the end of the day, you might see some interesting information or artifacts from that research. And then they'll be like, okay, well, let's do some more research. And then you spin out for 12 months doing quote-unquote research, and you're just like, Jesus Christ, this is a waste of my fucking time, right? I, I said no 12 fucking months ago. Let it just be no, and can't we move on and try something else? And that's not an indictment of that company. It's, it's, it's all, a lot of publicly traded large corporations are like this. It's like they want to make sure they're doing it right. And so, you know, when it came to the end, for me, it was, I got, felt pushed a little bit. And so it was time. It was time for me to leave. I remember when you guys sold, it was very much Instagram, WhatsApp, all, all these companies that were bought by Facebook were going to be kept separate. I think it sounds like kind of what you're saying is what changed was that promise is the integration of some of that. And with that came a lot of, of a vision that you just didn't yeah. see for the company. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky to say, oh, well, there were promises and broken promises, or was it just simply that people changed their mind? Right. And, and I don't, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. I think, you know, this is a dynamic world we live in. You know, what, what was sort of the way I thought about it in 2014 is exactly what you described. We would be separate. We would stay in our Mountain View office. We would continue, we would build our own business and we would largely be independent. 
Um, and then in 2015, uh, you know, things got chipped away a little bit. 2016, things got chipped away. And then by 2017, we're moving into Menlo Park office and um, we're having to go to all these corporate meetings about these corporate initiatives that we just don't even support. And they like wanted, what? what was the thing that you didn't support? Um, well, there, there was, there was events in Facebook's history. It was like, oh, well, there's this bad thing happening, like, oh, some form of bullying. Right. And, and so they would come to us and like, what are you doing about this? And we're like, uh, well, we can't look at the traffic. So we're doing nothing. Because the idea is that you guys were building encrypt- an encryption, right? Like WhatsApp was encrypted and, and that was a very big deal to you. And it seems like it's a very big deal to Mark now. But, but back then, like, you know, there's been a lot of that, that debate of yes. like, should this be encrypted? Should it not? So you're kind of in there fighting and saying, no, no, this, these communications need to be secure and encrypted. Well, it, it wasn't so much of a fight. It was, it was education because the, a lot of the sort of, I don't want to call them legacy, but a lot of the outstanding Facebook employees didn't understand what it meant to live in an encrypted world, right? They didn't understand that you didn't have access to content because in their own world, they did. And they're like, oh, well, we can police this all day long. And it's like, no, you, you can't because it's encrypted. We can't look at it ourselves, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in me, for me, 2013, WhatsApp, I worked with a wonderful intern and we did a prototype of doing encryption in WhatsApp. 24, end of 2013 is actually when I met Moxie and he sort of smacked me a little bit. Well, intellectually smacked me down because, you know, my prototype was extraordinarily naive, right? Whereas what Moxie was building was sort of state-of-the-art and sophisticated. And so it was very self-evident. It was like, okay, let's work with Moxie to bring good, strong encryption to WhatsApp and WhatsApp messages. And that's what Moxie helped us do. And for those folks who don't know who Moxie is, I, I know Moxie because I met him at yeah. a hacker conference, right, in Vegas. But he's like this infamous hacker for good, if you will, right, um, who um, I almost like want to describe what he looks like because he's so epic looking. Like he's very tall and has like blonde dreadlocks and mm-hmm. like and he's very mysterious and he has so much respect in the security world. Very much so. And through this wonderful Silicon Valley, I got introduced to him. I met him. Jan met him. We decided that we would move forward. And at that time is when Facebook decided to buy us. And so we, John and I both went to Mark and we're like, Mark, we're still building encryption. You And, and Mark, Mark was fairly diplomatic. He's like, yeah, go ahead. You guys do what you want to do, right? Um, again, to the sort of, oh, you're independent. Mark was okay with it. And so we continued on and it took us almost two years to change the engine while the airplane was in the air. I mean, it's it's not an easy feat. Um, and I don't think it's a, a slam dunk decision that every company wants to make. But that's the power of what Jan and I could do is we could say, yeah, we're going to do this. Let's go do it. And we would say no to a half a dozen other things. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, that eroded over time. And it was it was time for me to leave. Do you remember your last conversation with Mark? Yeah. How'd it, it go? It was just a very sort of matter of fact conversation. There was a trigger in my contract that talked about monetization initiatives. Um, and I did invoke that trigger, not really knowing what outcome I really wanted, but more to just make a point that these monetization initiatives were things that I didn't believe in and that I, I wanted to make my point. So I made my point and I left. I didn't pursue any further sort of litigation on the matter or anything. Right. But this idea that you wanted it to be known that this is not, that the company built, you didn't believe it should be monetized in this way. There shouldn't be ads in it. Right. Right. 
And was he angry at you? No, no. It was it was a fairly. The one time he was angry with me was the day that I triggered it because I think he felt threatened or he felt like I had affronted him in some way. And, and so I actually do remember I said to him, I said, look, this is about ads. I don't want to put ads in the product. And that, you know, that was my, my position on the matter. And what um, did he say? It was more like, okay, that's your opinion. Right. So, and again, you know, Mark, Mark is a fairly level-headed person. He's not, he wasn't, like screaming at me or anything. Um, and he's a fairly, you know, analytical person. So, I, I, you know, I don't know if I ever had an impact on him. I don't know if I ever had any, I don't know if I moved that needle. I'd like to think that now that Facebook's taking a stronger position on encryption, that maybe I helped move that needle. Um, but I don't know. The idea is that they're golden handcuffs and you stay long enough, you're stock best and you get the amount that, you know, that you kind of signed on for. Um, so you could have stayed a year, but instead, right, it was about another year, but instead you you walked out the door and left $850 million on the table, right? A little bit more. Yeah. She's pausing for effect. I'm trying to think of my head. It must have been hard. Yeah, but how much money do you need? Money and wealth does not buy immortality. It does, I mean, I'm 47, right? I'm not your 20-something startup founder, you know? And so for me, time is actually more of an essence. How long, how much, how can I contribute to this world while I'm still on it? A year is a lot of time. Yes, I could have sucked it up, but it also is not my DNA to phone it in. And, you know, I could have done a mix of trying to half phone it in and kind of limp along and kind of half do my job and that's just not me. I, it's not not who I am. I mean, I want to. If I'm there, I want to be there. If I'm not, then I'm not. And so it was more a binary decision of like, and that was that was that. How did you feel walking out of there? Um, numb, a little numb. Yeah, I mean, it's for me. You know, it was the end of a really wonderful time, and you know, it was eight years almost to the day that I I was part of WhatsApp, and I, I saw so much met, you know, some great people and, and saw so much growth and everything else. But I also knew that I was moving on to something bigger, better, more important. And that's what I wanted to focus on. What were the, the months after like for you emotionally? It was fairly more of the numb, I think. I was trying to, I was, you're, you're actually asking me something I haven't really thought about. It was more just sort of internalizing and grokking and really understanding sort of what I had done in the impact of it. I, I mean, I'm a fairly sort of even keeled person. I had, I didn't have any sort of freak out moments or anything like that, but it was like, you know, occasionally you second guess yourself. It's like, did I really make the right choice? Should I have stayed longer? You know, am I doing the right thing going forward that, you know, those are, those are some of the things where you sort of, you know, sort of mentally debate yourself. Um, but overall, you know, I, I sort of went, got through that over sort of a six-month window. And you never looked back at the, the money? No, no. I don't to this day. You can get caught up in playing the Forbes game. Um, I don't really like that game. So it's, it's, it's not something for me. What do you um, mean? Well, Forbes keeps score. You know, who's, who's, who's in the first place? Is it Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates? I mean, it's a game. Right. I mean, there's there's no point in either one of them having the wealth levels that they have. Right. And no, no disrespect to them. I mean, they've earned that that wealth, but it fucks with your psyche. Right. It's like, oh, I'm going to go play the, the Forbes game. I want to see if I can get into the top 10 list instead of the top 100 list or whatever. And it's like 
you drive yourself nuts. Was there ever a party that thought maybe even with everything happening around privacy and looking at the trouble Facebook has gotten into, maybe if you had stayed, you would have had an impact within? No. no. I was never a member of the inner circle there. I was never, I was a lone voice in a, in a voice. I was, I was very much a counter voice in that organization. Except I, I Jan was with me. So, it, it, but it was he and I who were often the, Maverick's not the right word, but we were often the people that were sort of counter to what the, what was being spoken about in the room. We'd be like, no, we don't want to do this. And you need naysayers in any tech company, right? I yeah. think it's useful to have naysayers for sure. I don't know if I had the best user interface for it. Because, you, you know, I, well, I mean, I'm fairly terse and abrupt and everything else. And so, you know, that's off-putting sometimes for people. It's like when you're a naysayer and, and what they want is more collaboration. Hmm. Um, I don't know. But yeah, I was not the naysayer that they needed. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, Brian opens up about his next big act, privacy and the pursuit of free expression. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up... (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. 
His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. It came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You met Moxie when he was helping build out encryption for WhatsApp. And he was building Signal, which is this encrypted messaging app, right, that, that lets you communicate privately. So you leave WhatsApp, and this is such a huge thing. And, and so you could have kind of done whatever you wanted, but you put a lot of your time and effort into building out a private communication tool. Yes, absolutely. I, I wanted to continue. And I, I think what happened in my tenure at WhatsApp is that sort of the crystallization around the mission started to happen. And I started to see more alignment with with what Signal was and was becoming. And so I saw it as an opportunity to further the mission and put, you know, make it my life's work, I suppose. And you put 50, I want to say 50 million into it? Yep. Um, and, and so when you put that in, it was an encrypted app. So at the top level, you have the foundation. The foundation I set up as an umbrella foundation. And I wanted to do that with the hope and the expectation of having other products and services. The flagship product today is Signal Messenger. It's very similar to WhatsApp. It's very similar to Telegram. You sign up with your username, with your telephone number. Once you get into the system, you can message people, you know, if they have Signal installed as well, or you can, there's an SMS bridge. But long and short is it's a telephone number messaging system, highly encrypted though, encrypted by default. So it has sort of a lot stronger position than say some other products because there's actually more of it encrypted than any other product. And maybe we branch out into other areas where we could also benefit from increased privacy and increased security. Where do you see that going? I'd love to see stronger mail position, email. I'd love to see stronger payment positions. I'd love to see stronger positions around storage, around identity, you know, uh, I mean, Google and Facebook have this login system, and it's all sort of kind of in the clear data that you're giving to them. I mean, it shouldn't necessarily be that way. But it feels like the world is catching up in some capacity to understanding the data problem and, and the fact that communications might not be secure. What is your philosophy now on when it comes to privacy? Signal especially takes the strongest position, which is we either don't have the information or the information we do have is encrypted in a way we can't look at it. And that's, in my opinion, the most, the strongest and most protective position. You know, to me, privacy is protection, right? We're protecting our users, protecting it even from ourselves, right? And it's, it's a rare stance and it creates some substantial technical hurdles to actually achieve that. So to a degree, there's also a, a little bit of an R&D element to what we're doing. We're working on problems that haven't been solved or haven't been solved and um, made widespread available. But there's also this debate over encryption that I think is actually hitting Silicon Valley in a very real way yeah. right now, which is government law enforcement uh, is saying, you know, 
full encryption, we should be able to create a backdoor in some capacity. People like me, as a journalist, I can talk to people securely, but also terrorists, pedophiles can use this. So what is your stance is just everything should be private? Well, I think that what ends up happening is you have a group of people in the world, the bad people, and no matter what you build, they're going to find a safe way to do their bad thing, right? In other words, let's say we're forced to build encryption with a backdoor, hypothetically. They, these bad people, will just migrate to a technology that doesn't have a backdoor. You know, the devices enable this, and, you know, it's not necessarily the communications uh, channel that's to blame. The world wants us to talk about encrypted communication as one sliver of this pie, but this pie is so large. If you do that, you're going to impact a lot of good people, and you're going to, in a bad way, and, and so you're actually taking away their privacy in, in so doing. You're creating more surveillance in the world, and you're not actually making a dent with the bad people. The bad people are going to still continue to do their bad things. Given everything that's happened with the tech companies and what we're looking at, do you think we have to re-envision privacy and our idea of privacy or lack thereof? I hope that we actually envision privacy, not re-envision it, we endorse it more. I think if anything, the, the companies of the world need to consider more of your information as private and to be more careful about how they handle it and to um, you know protect it better. Like a lot of these companies track you. Track your activity, track track your behavior, track what you do. I mean, they don't always need to do that. You know, they do it in, in support of advertising, right? They do it in support of showing you the, the right thing at the right time so that you engage with it, right? But, you know, maybe there's better business models. If it's not advertising, what is it? Subscription? That that can be a model. I think, you know, um, you know at, at Signal, we've, we've been debating back and forth, with, uh, you know, should we do A or B? You know, donations for us is really, you know, where we think about it because like Wikipedia is donation driven, right? And, and you know, why, isn't, why shouldn't Signal also be donation driven? You know, why shouldn't be more of the internet be nonprofit, right? If it's really useful, people will pay for it for sure. What do you worry about the most? I mean, you sit at the heart of all of this. I do worry that the United States will take a short-sighted position on this and pass some, some dumb laws. They will actually put us at a disadvantage globally because the United States can only pass laws that apply to the United States, right? And so if, if for example, they say, okay, you have to have a back door, what does Signal do? Well, we leave the, we leave the country, right? We, we reincorporate in Switzerland or somewhere else and we continue business, but the people of the United States lose out, Right. Now that the government is paying attention and there's pressure on Silicon Valley, what do you think should happen? The tech companies of the world, uh, in my opinion, should be doubling down on privacy and encryption. They should be doing more of it. Do you think um, they are? I think it remains to be seen. I think that, you know, in, in the Facebook case, I think they have an execution problem, which is how do you get three disparate systems to all talk to each other and maintain the same standard of encryption? I think in the Google case they have um, a different problem. Like, like take Google Mail, for example. It's like they, they have this search feature, right? You, if you encrypt everything, you lose the search feature. And that, that speaks to sort of like the technical hurdles of prying, uh, you know, providing strong encryption. Like it comes at a cost. Yeah. For them to, to re-architect their systems so that it's still searchable and yet encrypted in a way that Google can't look at it Means a, means a substantial change for them. And, 
you know, unless you've got sort of a really strong leader who's going to say, I don't care, let's do it. They're going to just continue business as usual with all your emails exposed to Google, you know, all your Google Drive content exposed to Google, you know, all this stuff that's in the quote unquote cloud is readable by Google and hence readable by, you know, uh, government uh, authorities. There's this narrative right now, especially playing out politically, where all these tech companies are under fire. Do you think that tech companies have too much power and influence? That's a loaded question, right? I think that they have their measure of power and influence, um, as does any uh, other form of media. To have too much is, applies a judgment statement. I don't, I don't know if I'm really equipped to judge that. Well, I think there's a larger question of, like, are these companies monopolies? And I guess WhatsApp kind of sat at the center of that because WhatsApp sold to Facebook. And you have someone like Senator Warren saying WhatsApp should be broken up from Facebook, that Facebook has too much power. Do you think WhatsApp should be taken away from Facebook? She's, she's narrowing it to sort of like the, the place of single, you know, communications, and, and again, it goes back to sort of what is the equation here? I think one of them is, is there alternatives? And the answer is absolutely yes. There's many alternatives. So how can you claim that a single company is a quote-unquote monopoly when there's five different alternatives I could rattle off and name as alternatives to Facebook? It's only a de facto monopoly because people choose to use Facebook or use WhatsApp or use whatever. It's not a monopoly through any other form. They don't have any stronghold over the American people. American people, you can switch apps any day of the week, right? You can go use Signal. You can use, you know, WeChat if you're if you want to. I mean, really, give away your privacy. But like, there's other apps you can use. There's there's nothing that's no one's pointing a gun to your head and saying you must use WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever. I mean, there are choices. So that would be your message to to a lot of the politicians who are talking about these companies needing to be broken up, that there are still alternatives? I, I, I would really want to understand what the basis of breaking them up was. I mean, the one that we have historically is AT&T, right? And so AT&T, there was no choice. That was the whole reason they had to break up AT&T. You couldn't get an alternate long-distance carrier. Like, there were all these problems with AT&T being the monopoly yeah. because you couldn't get another phone company to come to your house and give you signal. Right. That's not the case on the Internet. Internet, the Internet, you have virtually infinite choice. So to break up, to, you're essentially penalizing one company and breaking them up and allowing all the other companies that you're actually not even legally authorized to break up to continue on. So in some ways, it's anti-competitive for American companies to try to break them up. Right. You're just allowing some other foreign company to actually take over some of the market share because you're artificially imposing some sort of breakup philosophy. And you, you don't even have a good mechanism to sort of break it up under what terms. There are certainly things that I think that Facebook has been accused of doing on an unfair advantage basis, but that'd be another criteria to evaluate them, or Google for that matter. I mean, Google also is like, are they posing unfair advantage in some, some areas? That would be maybe a basis more so than like, oh, these shouldn't be allowed to talk to each other. Do you think Silicon Valley is doing enough now when it comes to the debate on privacy and security and our data? All I can speak to credibly is what, what we work on, though. I'm not in the inside in as much as I, I know Facebook's product roadmap. Right. So I, I have to sit on the sideline with you and say, you know, where's the proof in the pudding? When is Facebook going to really roll out these strong privacy protections? A good litmus test would be if Facebook Messenger was encrypted by default. It's not. 
it is not encrypted by default. So you could, you, and you could apply that to almost any chat application. Is it encrypted by default? And the only other one besides Signal is WhatsApp. Every conversation by default on WhatsApp is encrypted. Every conversation by default on Signal is encrypted. On the other products, you have to invoke it. You have to say, I want a private conversation, right? You have to go off the record, so to speak. We've spent our lives sharing our data on Facebook. We've put ourselves out there. We've been asked to and we have. So why do you tell people that this is this is the future of communications? Like we've spent, part one was open communications in the open web. And now you even have Zuckerberg. Everyone's saying like, okay, private, private, private is the future. So explain to folks why. Well, there, I mean, there's a one dimension, which is the private part. And then there's another dimension, which is, trust me, it's private. I think where Signal really pushes it is the, the latter, not the former. I think everyone is sort of really starting to understand the value of the privacy. But we take it a step further in the sense that you shouldn't have to trust us to know it's private, right? And that's the, that's the stance that we take with, with Signal. We don't want to force you to trust us. We don't want to be some mega corporation, Fortune 500 company. Oh, just trust us. We'll do the right thing. You know, Target was a trusted company, and then they leaked all those Visa credit card numbers, right? That, that shit happens, right? Trust us, and we won't make any mistakes. It's like, those mistakes happen all the time. It certainly seems like this idea of, like, just trust us is, is over, or we shouldn't anymore. No, we still trust so many companies. But should we? I, I think that... You, we as a people should be demanding more transparency. We should be asking where our data is, how is it stored, and getting more things talked about in the open. How can people better ask their companies these questions when they can't even, we can't even really fully wrap our head around what's happening? I think we're all wrapping our heads around this. And then we see some companies, you know, sort of do a better job at it. I certainly, when I was at Facebook and WhatsApp, um, saw the terms of service getting lawyered to death. And it was painful, right? I mean, Jan and I wanted the simplest terms of service we could make. Which would be? Like, we're not going to put ads in the product. We're, you know, we're not going to sell your data. We're not going to do this, right? I was going to say in defense of the lawyers. There, there are some real pragmatic problems that sort of manifest in writing a terms of service and conveying this in such a way that the user understands it. So it's, it's, it's complicated, right. right? It's not like a slam dunk. Oh, yeah, let's just regulate the shit out of this. And because peeling the onion, right, you start to cry. You're like, oh, crap, what about this case? What about this case? What about this case? And people wave their sort of magic wand. They're like, oh, well, reg regulation is going to solve this. And it's like, regulation is going to make everyone cry. What is, so, so then what do you think is going to solve? Do you think regulation, not breaking up Facebook, not breaking up the tech companies, not regulation, so, so what? We are, as a, as a population, are evolving. I think we educate and teach people. You end up creating uh, indirectly nonprofit watchdog groups that point out bad behavior. And then I think as consumers, we can vote with our dollars. We can choose the services that we trust and the, the, the services that provide more transparency into that trust and demand that. But it's, it's, a slow, it's a slow needle to move and it takes a lot of user education. I mean, we as a population are just new to the internet in general. It's only 20, 25 years old, right? I mean, it's, it's ungodly to think that how short of time that is. Not many people have created a product that has impacted as many people as you. Over 1.5 billion monthly actives, at least as the public data says. To create something that big that impacts that many people is pretty extraordinary um, in, in some capacity. Do you ever feel the pressure of, will I ever do something that big again? Or does that ever get into your head? I don't know. I, I hope with Signal, I can have even greater impact. 
that, um, and remember, we're a nonprofit mission-driven organization. So if all of the big tech companies decided to adopt the same philosophies of Signal, we would be successful and we could close shop, right? That's that's sometimes how it works with nonprofits. It's like you mission accomplished. But I think it's it's many years out. And, you know, that's why I can sort of devote my time and my energy and my money to this endeavor. I can and and seek to have an impact that even exceeds what I accomplished with WhatsApp. So it's very personal to you. Well, I think that goes back to, you know, the passion part of it. And yeah, I mean, I am passionate about this mission. I'm passionate about this organization. And it's my fundamental belief. And I've always valued people in the equation. It's not always about the code. It's about the people that build this. And, um, you know, and that's in my DNA into building organizations. Did I thought something you said earlier was really interesting where you said money doesn't buy you happiness. You have all the money in the world. So that's an interesting statement to say that doesn't mean you're happy. I don't have all the time in the world. What does that mean? Take it, take it as you hear it. I mean, on a given day, there's only 24 hours. How many of those do I have to sleep just to stay healthy? How many of those do I have to exercise to stay healthy? Right? Do I do all the things that I need to do in that given day? No, because I have other commitments, right? So money doesn't buy time, right? You can outsource things and people might say, oh, woe is me, Brian, you, you've got all the money in the world, you can solve your problems. But it doesn't mean I can, I'm can. i spending more time with my kids, for example. That's time that you have to invest, right? What are you going to leave behind? How do you want to be known? Can I be known anonymously? Why do you want to be known anonymously? Um, Because it's it's... Maybe I see a bigger picture that's not about me, it's about humanity, right? I would, I would rather I, die knowing that I had a positive impact on humanity than to have my name attached to it, if, if that makes sense to you. That, that I, could, I could have my small impact in the world and, and knowing that just myself and personally is all that matters. The most interesting founders I've interviewed are manifestations of the companies they create. They're in the ethos of the platform or the code they put out into the world. Brian Acton is no exception. I go back to when I asked Brian how he wants to be known. He says, anonymously, when you're worth billions and your product has touched billions, it feels almost counterintuitive to say you'd want to be left unknown. But maybe it makes sense. If you look at his next act, where he's spending his time and money post WhatsApp, Brian's mission for privacy, encryption, and a pursuit of free expression all under the umbrella of the Signal Foundation are exactly that. If you could extract a theme from that work, it would be allowing for anonymity. And in a world where our data, our lives, and every move is documented, targeted, profiled, pursued, it's an interesting, nuanced thought. So I'll leave you with it. I'm Lori Siegel, and this is First Contact. For more about the guests you hear on First Contact, sign up for our newsletter. Go to firstcontactpodcast.com to subscribe. Follow me. I'm at Lori Siegel on Twitter and Instagram. And the show is at First Contact Podcast. If you like the show, I want to hear from you. Leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. First Contact is a production of Dot 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 Media. 
Executive produced by Lori Siegel and Derek Dodge. Original theme music by Xander Singh. Visit us at firstcontactpodcast.com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.